This morning's scripture reading is from chapter 2 of the book of Joshua. And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them, and she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Before the men lay down, she came up to to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites, who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that, As I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house. And give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, Our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall, so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, Go into the hills, or the pursuers will encounter you, and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward you may go your way. The men said to her, We will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord into the window through which you let us down, and you shall gather into your house your father and mother, your brothers, and all of your father's household. Then if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us swear. And she said, According to your words, so be it. Then she sent them away, and they departed. And she tied the scarlet cord in the window. They departed and went into the hills and remained there three days until the pursuers returned. And the pursuers searched all along the way and found nothing. Then the two men returned. They came down from the hills and passed over and came to Joshua, the son of Nun, and told them all that had happened to them. And they said to Joshua, Truly the Lord has given all the land into our hands. And also, all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. This is God's word. I'm going to talk this morning to two groups of people, hitchhikers and drivers. 
And so I'm going to spend this morning sort of going back and forth between hitchhikers and drivers. And if you don't like to be labeled, rest assured it was either this or calling you spies and prostitutes all morning. (laughs) So I just figured, let's make an analogy instead. Now, what's your take on hitchhiking? I talked to a number of you and heard some of your stories about hitchhiking. There were some quite entertaining ones, uh, both as a hitchhiker and hitchhikee. Where I'm from, hitchhiking was quite popular until about the 1970s uh, when murderers and crazy people uh, decided there was some potential in it for them. So, you know, it got less popular. So I remember my first morning here, I was surprised turning out of my neighborhood to see on the corner right away someone sticking out their thumb. Uh, That was followed quickly by a man shouting through my window as I was pretending not to see his thumb. Now, you know this scenario, right? You're heading out to your job, whatever your morning responsibilities may be, and you don't expect to encounter a stranger who's requesting to sit alongside you in your passenger seat as you listen to KISS FM. You're not prepared. Well, my, I know for me, my wife Katie quickly uh, balanced out my lack of preparation for this by becoming a serial hitchhikey. All right, uh, for a while the government you know, actually dismissed the idea of public transportation solely because of my wife's Honda Odyssey. Some <laughs> people. Uh, and I wanted this morning to encourage both drivers and hitchhikers alike, to be prepared for this sort of encounter. Because that's basically the kind of idea we get here in Joshua 2. Let me give you a quick road map where we're going here this morning. We're going to talk first about the two characters in the story. Then we're going to talk about what is needed for faith, for one of these characters to have faith. And finally, are you prepared for faith? So we have these spies who are essentially driving to work. Right? They're going to do their job. Remember that God has promised his people this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. It's a great land, and it's finally their land. And specifically, he's going to give it to Joshua and generation next. This unique generation is going to occupy it. And the coach gives a big pep talk to them in chapter 1. And he moves Joshua, spurs him into action. And that action is sending spies. All right, we're going to do this. Let's first, we're going to send spies into the land, check it out, do a little reconnaissance work. And they arrive at their destination. And they are stealthy. I mean, they really show their stealthiness by staying with a prostitute for two reasons. And one of those reasons is not what you think, why they stay with a prostitute, all right? Uh, Let's just get that out of the way. Access to private information. If you want information that nobody else knows, maybe that leaders know, that important people know, prostitutes often know that information. Uh, And also, prostitutes tend to be, particularly in that time, you can understand this, more sympathetic to outsiders. Right? Because they themselves are often treated as an outsider. So, they're a safe person to go with if you want to say secretive. And of course, these spies did. So they're not only doing their job, but they're doing it wisely, they're doing it well. But they did not expect what came next. 
You have a foreign prostitute who becomes the first non-Jew to hitchhike her way into the family of faith. Unlike previous opportunistic foreigners, such as people like Balaam and Pharaoh, who, who demonstrate temporary faith, or they sort of feign faith for the temporary perks, Rahab's faith lasts. It endures. She hangs on to it in the midst of a radically different worldview. She hangs on to her faith in Yahweh for months, years. In fact, we read the culmination of her faith, and our faith is rewarded in chapter 6 of Joshua. We'll look at that in a few weeks. Her foreign faith leads to her being a great, 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 great grandma of Jesus Christ. Matthew 1 says this, very beginning of Matthew, says the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, and, and then from Abraham he gets into the son of Isaac, the son of, and he keeps going down the list until we get to, and Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. So we find out that Rahab is married to this guy named Salmon, they have Boaz, and on goes the line until eventually it comes Jesus. Pretty cool. Her faith is applauded by the author of Hebrews in the New Testament. Hebrews 11.31 says this, By faith Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And that genuine faith is genuine because it leads to action. As James tells us in the book of James, chapter 2, verse 25, in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by her works when she received the messengers, the spies, and sent them out by another way. Great-great-grandmother of Jesus, model of faith, the people she was around, celebrated the New Testament. But an important side, before we go further, her demonstration of faith that's applauded by God, involves, of course, a series of lies. That's one of the things that might catch your attention as you read this, and you read what Hebrews says and what James says. Here's a woman of great faith. But wait a minute, didn't she lie? Well, while still in the wrong, the importance of telling the truth in Rahab's culture and her time was almost surely surpassed by the laws of ancient Near Eastern hospitality. When someone came into your house, even if they were your greatest enemy and they ate salt at your table, you were bound to save their life, whatever that meant. So honoring one's guest in her understanding was higher than even this moral law. But it's still wrong. But it's not just her. The spies in this great moment of faith and, and what they do in response to her well, their demonstration of faith by agreeing to spare Rahab is also a big no-no. In Deuteronomy 7 and 20, God specifically forbids his people making covenants with the Canaanites, with the people of this promised land. Don't make deals with them. But they do with Rahab. And again, an important aside, I think this shows us something, that God loves people stepping out in faith. So much that he often even uses it, even when it's messy and imperfect. People stepping out. 
on a God-sized mission like we've been talking about. An opportunity to see him glorify, an opportunity for him to do something big. But in summary, here's what we got here. Spies on the way to do their job. They encounter Rahab, who becomes the first non-family member to get picked up, to come along for the ride that's fulfilled in chapter 6, and to become part of the family. It's a pretty amazing moment in Scripture. What is it, though? What is it that sets off and ignites faith in Rahab? To take that step. What, what is needed for faith? Another way to ask this. Two things we see here in this passage. One, a historical truth which satisfies her deepest longings. And two, people. We're talking about both these things. First of all, historical truth which satisfies her deepest longing. Her deepest longing while it requires a little bit of digging, is really quite simple. Survival. I mean, this was a time of a very short lifespan, right? Essentially, your first longing was to live. And it was no different for Rahab. How do I know this? Well, her previous faith was based on survival, and her future faith is based on it also. Everyone has faith in something. Everyone has faith in something. At some point, you take some step of faith in whatever you believe in, whether it's a scientific method or whether it's in an almighty eternal God. Rahab was no different. She was part of a religious system that said, if you want to guarantee survival, you'll join with us in worshiping the two gods who can give you food. Baal was the principal god. Baal or Baal, whatever you want to call him. He was the principal God. He was associated with soil productivity. All right, keeping things fertilized before there was fertilizer. Ashtoreth was his wife. She was uh, represented as a nude woman. Why not? Uh, she was the personification of reproduction in nature. So when Baal and Ashtoreth got it on, I don't know how to say that, uh, crops were in abundance, and people survived. All right, and guess what helped these two lovebirds get it on? Well, human priests having intimate encounters with, guess who, temple prostitutes. That's how you would culminate worship of these two gods, so that they would appease the people and give them life through food. Temple priests, temple prostitutes. That's something that Rahab was quite familiar with. Now, it also, I need to say, this didn't hurt that as the lowest city on the planet, 750 feet below sea level, Jericho was extremely well irrigated. All right, I should say that as well. All right, so you got food important to survival. The other major factor important to Rahab's survival and that of her neighbors in the ancient Near East was an invading army. All right? producing crops, and an invading army. But because the Hittites to the north of this area were tired, and Pharaoh uh, Akhenaton to the south wasn't much of a military dude, it was a time of relative peace. Hence the focus just on the fertility gods. That is until she hears of historical testimony about these wandering people, the Israelites which she has clearly considered so carefully, this testimony, 
that she deems it true. Read with me, if you would, verses 8 through 11. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord, using his name, Hebrew name Yahweh, has given you the land. And that the fear of you has fallen upon us. And that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard, here's the historical testimony that's true, we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon, to Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted. There was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Did she doesn't just say this is interesting. I'd like to hear more about this. No, I, I want to tell you, I think your God is the real God. Eternal. God of heaven and earth. And I believe what your scriptures say about him giving you this land. And what's remarkable here is this testimony we read that she gives. Isn't just hearsay or rumors most likely, but Jerichoites actually heard some of the book of Exodus. What's so interesting here is the language she uses here in verse 9 before talking about the Red Sea, mirrors almost 100% the words of Exodus 15, 15 through 16, which is Moses' song of praise after parting the Red Sea. Exact same Hebrew words. If you know it seems likely, then this is, they've actually heard the book of Exodus here in Jericho. And this testimony that she's heard of God's truth is further confirmed as truth because it's borne out through experience. Right? She says, okay, well, this, this seems interesting, seems true. We hear this, and it's making a difference in people's lives. Radically, right? The inhabitants are melting in fear. People are fainting. It's making a real difference. So all of a sudden, because she hears something that satisfies her deepest needs, and she considers it true, She concludes that Baal and Ashtoreth are pretty weak. But here's a God who gets things done. He is going to allow this alien military force to divide, conquer, wipe out this population because he's promised them. And that means that they will now have possession of this incredibly fertile land that sustains life. The two things she needs most deeply. And here's a God that can provide it for her truth that is immediately relevant to her because it satisfies her deepest longings. That's what she needs. But she also needs people. On her own, she has no access to God. She needs to encounter these two spies. She needs good news in the form of mercy, and that's what she gets. And she forces the issue. Look with me in verse 14. The men said to her, Actually, earlier, sorry, verse 11. As soon as we heard it, our hearts melted. No spirit left in any man because of, because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her in verse 14 here, our life for yours, even to death. 
if you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. She needs these men to communicate mercy to her, good news. She's on her own. She doesn't know about God. She, she doesn't know what God, can you release me from this? Can you save my family? And they tell her how this can be done. In the New Testament, God uses people as the primary means of communicating good news of how to be saved, how to be rescued. Jesus talks about to his disciples, this harvest is plentiful. There are people ready to hear the good news, but the workers refuse. So what does Jesus ask them to do? Pray for more harvest workers. Pray for people who will go and tell them. Paul says it this way in Romans 10, 13-15. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how are they to call on him in whom they have not believed? And how can someone believe in him when they've never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? How are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. 2 Corinthians 5, 7 puts it this way, that we have these treasures in jars of clay. In, in, in other words, in skin and in humanity. To show that this all-surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Every believer, every person who trusts Christ carries around with him or her a treasure to give. But it comes in a person. Why a person? In addition to God getting more glory, as we're told there, if it comes through stumbling, bumbling people like you and me, he gets more glory. It must be God. If, if I said something and people actually trusted Jesus, in addition to God getting more glory, People create a crisis of faith when circumstances don't. In his groundbreaking book, Experiencing God, Henry Blackaby talks about people getting this moment in their life which serves as a crisis of faith. Uh, He describes it as a turning point or fork in the road that demands you make a decision. You must decide what you believe about God. That might be this morning for some of you. This might be your crisis of faith and, and by God's grace, I'm the person who's telling you, but maybe, I hope at some point you've experienced this. And he talks about this crisis of faith primarily being in terms of circumstances, you know, the loss of a job, something difficult oftentimes. But as we know, living in a time of blessings, we've been talking about in this series, people often don't get that tough circumstance, but a person can be that circumstance. A person can be that crisis of faith. For Rahab, encountering these men was her crisis. It was her turning point, her chance. You might be that chance for someone. Someone's turning point, their chance to step out to demonstrate faith in Jesus Christ. There are two audiences I'm speaking with this morning, so I have two different ways to summarize this message. So to the drivers, those who trusted Christ and are on a mission on their way, here's a sermon in a nutshell. Be prepared. You never know when you might encounter a hitchhiker. Someone who wants to jump into the family of faith. We're told in 1 Peter 3.15 to always be prepared. Always be prepared 
to give an answer to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that you have. And yes, people do need a reason. So we need to be prepared. People need a reason. It's not enough to say, let go and let leap. As if the whole thing of trusting Jesus is a leap of faith. People do need a reason. I got to say, I feel like a little bit of a broken record this morning. It's kind of the same sermon. I feel like I've preached a lot lately. Uh, But maybe that's because the Bible, I think, repeats this same sermon. The same pattern in Scripture of personal evangelism. Personally going out and sharing the good news with others. Rahab needed the same personal approach. The New Testament doesn't talk about people gathering in church settings to hear the good news for the first time. Lots of people gather together in a church and they, we, we get them there and so they hear the good news for the first time. They believe the New Testament actually doesn't really talk about that. Instead, the pattern we see in the book of Acts when the church starts is mostly people going out two by two to share personally with others. So be prepared, drivers. Sermon in a nutshell for you hitchhikers who are here this morning. You're interested. We're so glad you're here with us. Be prepared, though, to receive people and listen. Because what you hear just might be enough. As human beings, I know we we tend to live life on the defensive, right? Uh, Ever skeptical, cynical. uh, When someone talks to us about something that's important to them, that sounds kind of radical, we decide ahead of time that, you know, whatever they say is not going to really be enough for me to take that next step of faith. Whatever they say, it's not going to be enough. But if you listen closely, the gospel message may just be the truth that best answers your deepest longings. So I want to wrap up this morning by laying out two questions that get at people's deepest longings. You know, I want to help you be prepared. You drivers, for those of you who have trusted Christ, and I want to ask you hitchhikers to be prepared to listen. Because rather than only share the gospel in a traditional way, I want to spell out the gospel using questions that real people want answered. All right, so that's what I'm going to do this morning. With each question, I'm going to give you my best verse and my best story. And you can, I'm trying to put them in a way that you can repeat them. Are you prepared for faith? Rahab was prepared to listen. She was prepared to hear historical truth that answered her deepest longings, that Yahweh was a God who could give and sustain life. The historical truth I offer you this morning is this. A perfect, holy God created mankind for a relationship with him. People decided, though, from birth to go and just just do their own thing with their mind, with their body, with their heart, with their soul, saying, you know what? No. To their creator. But God still loved people enough to have a plan to restore men and women to himself. So Jesus, co-eternal with God the Father, came down in the form of man to live a perfect life of obedience, and he tag-teamed in for all mankind. Meaning he died the death we deserve to die. Tag-teaming in and taking on God's 
just punishment for rebelling against him. And then Jesus defeated death, confirming that if we trust our lives to him, we could also defeat death and live with him forever. That's the historical truth I offer you. And this gospel can answer life's deepest longings. Let me offer you two questions I find people long to have addressed. The first is the question of suffering, and the second is the question of pride. First, the question of suffering. If God is all good and all powerful, why do people, and specifically why do I, suffer? And what I find when talking about this with real people is that rather than people wanting this sort of definitive, technical answer to their question, most people want an answer that relates to and redeems suffering. That gets into their suffering and then redeems it. I want to tell you about a little-known play written by an East German pastor in 1960 called The Sign of Jonah. This is a, just a cool story plot, something to think about. In the sign of Jonah, the last scene is the final judgment. Armageddon, all the peoples of the earth are gathered on the plains of Jehoshaphat, ready to hear this verdict that God is going to issue. But as they gather, they start to get into small groups and talk sort of indignantly. And there are Jewish people there. You hear the Jewish people talk about the religious and political and social persecution. You get people who are victims of wars and victims of concentration camps and start saying things like, Man, what right has God to pass judgment on us, especially one who, who dwells up there in heaven? You have American blacks who are talking about degradation and slavery. You have persons over here born illegitimately, out of wedlock. You have the poor, the afflicted, the maltreated, scattered across this plain. Each group appoints a representative then to stand before God and challenge his divine right to pass sentence on their immortal destinies. And as a council, they decide that God cannot pass judgment unless he's willing to enter into the suffering, humiliated state of man to endure what they endured. And then here's what their official conclusion reads. You must be born a Jew. The circumstances of your birth must be questioned. You must be misunderstood by everyone insulted and mocked by your enemies, betrayed by your friends. You must be persecuted, beaten, and finally murdered in the most public and humiliating fashion. The crowd rises to a fever pitch as they await a response, and this brilliant light illuminates the plane, and one by one, those who are passing judgment fall silent and emblazoned across the skies the signature of Jesus with this inscription written above it, I have served my sentence. One scripture that confirms this, that this is a God who is willing to get into our suffering as a human being. Hebrews 4, 15 and 16 says this, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, yet was without sin. And it says, let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so we might receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. 
In other words, in the gospel, we have a religious leader who was weak in the flesh, experienced every temptation known to man, and so you can't approach him in your suffering because he understands. And he's the only God who's ever been proclaimed who does. The gospel addresses the question of suffering. It also addresses the question of pride. I had three questions this morning, but I only have time for two. Question of pride. And the question of pride goes something like this. Why is it that the family members, co-workers, politicians I watch and see in my everyday life get ahead and they do so through inflation of self, smug do-gooding, using others as stepping stones, you know, upchuck-inducing self-confidence, you know, these kind of people, while meek, mild, struggling, selfless, the timid are just thrown to the curb. Why is it that pride wins out? Is there any way to be both successful and a person of humility and integrity? And the way this is often addressed by different people's life philosophies and, and religions is to find a balance. You hear that phrase, like, you've got to find a balance between the two. You know, look out for others but without being a doormat. Balance this kind of belief in self that makes much of other people. That's why we get programs like CNN's Heroes, right? Be a great person because you look out for others. The problem is our entire experience of daily life tends to run against us because we observe the extreme of both of these poles, not the balance. The people who rise to the very top are usually the most hypocritical self-serving. While the meekest, the mildest, the most humble is the friend who gets used without knowing it and is the doormat without even realizing it. Only the gospel can address these two extremes by proclaiming that we are more corrupt than we ever dared believe, but more loved than we ever dared hope. I want you to hear that again. We are more corrupt than we ever dared or wanted to believe, but more love than we ever dared hope. It's what I call a, a humble confidence. Only the gospel message gives it. Total, sure belief that I am corrupt. I can't, I've tried. I can't do good on my own. But it doesn't cripple me because I also have total confidence that the source and reason for all goodness loves me as I am and not as I should be. It's radical. Do you guys remember that, that book, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde? Remember that? You, or you've heard kind of the story, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, the general idea. Robert Louis Stevenson. It's a great book. You probably know the basic premise. Dr. Jekyll has this drug that he makes. It turns him unconsciously into a uh, murderous monster. He becomes Mr. Hyde. And what uh, Dr. Jekyll finds as he lives his life, is that he is just as much Hyde in reality as he is Jekyll. There's this inner war within him. He wants to do good, but evil is right there within him. And he doesn't know how to reconcile it. What a lot of people don't know or don't remember is what I think is the climax of the book. He begins to get rid of Hyde, this evil force. He, he, he starts laboring to relieve the suffering of others and caring for other people. And he does so quietly, without much fanfare. 
And it seems like the job is done. I've eradicated Hyde. I've gotten rid of this part of me. And so he sits down on the park bench one day. He starts to just think. He's happy. He says this. I reflected. I was finally like my neighbors. And then I smiled, comparing myself with other men. Comparing my act of goodwill with, well, the lazy cruelty of their neglect. And at the very moment of that vainglorious thought, a qualm came over me, a horror nausea and a deadly shuddering. I looked down. My clothes hung formlessly on my shrunken limbs. The hand that lay on my knee was corded and hairy. I was once more Edward Hyde. You see what's happened there? It's just a brilliant moment. It's the dilemma of being a good human. The moment you've noticed that you've become the self-sacrificial, charitable, meek person that you respect and always wanted to be, a subtle superiority rushes in and you've become the person you wish to avoid. The gospel proclaims that you are both Mr. Hyde and Dr. Jekyll. You are the rebellious and sick to the core like Hyde, but someone else loves you enough to view you and make you like Jekyll, who's a personification of Jesus Christ. Loves you enough, cares for you enough, and powerful enough to make you like Jesus. That's the message. That's why in 2 Corinthians 3, 4 through 6, here's what Paul says. He used to be a smug guy, self-confident. Listen to his confidence now. Such is the confidence we have through Christ towards God. Not that we're sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant. Did you hear that? Confidence, sufficiency, competence. Sounds like an arrogant person, right? Pretty confident, unsufficient, confident. But not at all. How is it? Because of the gospel. The way you might want to communicate this might be like this. The Bible tells of people sharing with incredible confidence because they believe God makes them confident and sufficient because of what Jesus did for them. Historical truth about Jesus answers our deepest longings. God suffered and died so that he might suffer alongside you and one day deliver you from it. And... This truth enables you to live a life of both radical humility and radical confidence. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that the gospel answers our deepest questions. We thank you that like the historical testimony that Rahab heard about this promised land, you have given us this historical testimony about Jesus Christ this message of good news, of rescuing corrupt people. It's a message that reminds us that God loves us enough to get down in the mud with us and know what it's like to be with us. And it's a message that allows us to live our current lives in such a way that we can live both with humility, with deference, with a looking outwards towards others, yet with complete and radical confidence because of you, Jesus, and what you did for us on the cross. Father, I pray for those of us this morning 
We've given a mission to go and make disciples of all nations, or as it's sometimes translated, as you go, help us be prepared for hitchhikers who want to be part of God's family. Help us be ready to share with them. And for those of us who might be interested in joining the family of faith, I pray that you would help these, the truth of the gospel settle in and answer the longings of our heart. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.